Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You are about to listen to the Cybercognition Podcast, a show about artificial intelligence and how it is transforming the world around us. With your biological, sentient, and mostly rational human host, Hutch. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hello and welcome everybody to the sixth episode of the Cybercognition Podcast. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Hutch, and today we've got a really special episode. Uh, I will uh, save you guys or spare you guys the uh, monologue rant that we've done with some of the previous episodes and actually have a uh, guest that I'm really excited to have on this episode. Uh, my guest is uh, Jeremy Harris. He is an accomplished physicist, author, entrepreneur, AI professional, and podcaster himself. Um, Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I mean, thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited for this. We were chatting about, you know, the in the pre-chat, what the podcast, what the discussion would amount to. And I think it's a lot of topics that, uh, you know, people are, are kind of afraid to touch on these days. Like, you know, the idea of AI consciousness, that sort of thing. So anyway, I'm super excited about that kind of bold trajectory. Um, yeah, at my end, like you said, I mean, uh, had uh, a minor career in, in physics before jumping into into tech, um, took a, a company through Y Combinator when I was, uh, after I finished dropping out from uh, grad school where I was studying uh, foundations of quantum mechanics of all things. And um, yeah, and then uh, built that company up that actually, it became a pretty successful mentorship platform uh, powered by income share agreements to help people kind of break into the AI space. Um, but then GPT-3 happened. And when GPT-3 happened and the scaling laws that uh, kind of came behind it, that seemed to suggest that you know, we now kind of have the recipe for something like human level AI, like, or at least it became defensible to argue that maybe we had cracked the nut on this. Um, you know, I, I looked at this trend, I, I looked at it along with uh, Ed, my, my brother and co-founder, and, uh, and also Mark Beal, who's now the co-founder of our new company. And we all kind of went, mm, yeah, uh, if there was ever a time to worry about the, the prospect of imminent human level uh, AI, this is probably it. Uh, we've been worried about the uh, you know, risks of misalignment, catastrophic risk from AI for a long time, and this really focused our attention. So we basically dropped what we were doing and went headlong into AI safety and started doing a combination of, kind of product and policy work uh, that, uh, that we now do at, at Gladstone, which is the company that we co-founded. Awesome. Really excited to see what comes out of that. Um, so uh, also, uh, Jeremy is the author of the book Quantum Physics Made Me Do It. Uh, I just finished reading this book. It, I, I enjoyed oh. it tremendously. Um, intellectually engaging, uh, very entertaining. Um, kind of takes you through a tour of fundamental uh, quantum physics principles, interpretations of those, and then in the end starts applying that to uh, how we can understand the, the world at large and even artificial intelligence specifically. Um, so I, I guess uh, with that, um, why quantum physics and uh, what can that tell us about uh, ourselves, our lives, and AI? Well, depending on the framing, I guess like the reason why I got into quantum physics was that I kept asking why questions back when I was a biochemist. And that led me to physics, and ultimately that led me to quantum physics, uh, because when you keep asking why, eventually you either get to quantum physics or you get to general relativity, and uh, you got to pick one. And for me, quantum physics seemed, um, for various reasons, potentially more fundamental, though I'm not at all confident in that assessment. Um, yeah, so I, I ended up going in that direction, I think for the same reason that a lot of people go into AI in a weird way. Like, there are really just two ways of understanding the universe. You can understand it outside in, you know, look at the outside world 
the relationships between movements of particles and math and all that stuff and try to map it out. Um, and then there's, uh, there's inside out, trying to understand how your own brain works and trying to figure out if there's something fundamental that could be distilled, for example, into a machine so that machines could do our thinking for us and our discovery for us. And so there's kind of that fork in the road. I think that's a sense in which quantum physics and AI machine learning are, are sort of intimately linked. They're different poles of the same fundamental intellectual project that humans have been on for a long time, but they've only just become resolved into these two different poles as we've had the tools to kind of ask intelligent questions about each. And, uh, and so I don't think it's a coincidence that you find so many AI people who come from a physics background. You know, in both cases, it's kind of as fundamental as you can go in a sense, you know, other than going into like philosophy or, or epistemology, like trying to understand what it's possible to even know. Uh, you're kind of left with this menu. Like I either look at, take the world at face value, try to kind of study it as deeply as that perspective will allow me to get. Or I can look at my own brain and be fascinated by its function and try to replicate that to study it more closely. Again, I think that path also leads you down kind of mindfulness meditation, those sorts of paths. Again, not a coincidence. When you talk to alignment researchers at OpenAI, there's a really disproportionate interest in things like Buddhism and, and mindfulness meditation, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, anyway, long-winded long way of saying I, I think it's kind of one of those two poles in the story. And understanding both together, I think, is, is especially for fruitful ground, pregnant ground for kind of philosophical thought and understanding what the world may actually be. Awesome. And, and excellent, or excellent segue into kind of what we're going to be talking about today. So uh, I wanted to frame this conversation and kind of address a, a few different topics, um, all kind of addressed in your book as well as is kind of relevant to uh, the emerging changes that we're seeing in the artificial intelligence sector. So uh, really kind of want to focus this conversation on kind of three big things, uh, which is, uh, of course, kind of laying the foundation of talking about metaphysics. Um, so, of course, the, the science of kind of what is real, what is, what types of things are there in the world. Um, talk about consciousness and then talk about free will. And so uh, it, it is no exaggeration to say that, uh, I guess, to, to borrow a phrase from Douglas Adams from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, that we are here to solve the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we've got a, a little bit less than an hour to do that. Um, we're going to make it happen, right? I mean, how hard could it possibly be? Right, exactly. <laughs> um, so with that, I guess uh, really the first one that I think is foundational to the other two discussions is the question of metaphysics and what types of things are out there, what is real what is illusion yeah. um so uh was wondering if you could give us uh just in in your mind what is metaphysics at a high level and then kind of what you see as the the big categories of perspectives in that area yeah i you know it's, it's a huge domain and, and everybody will disagree over uh over what exactly it means and what its boundaries are um one way i like to think about it personally is like we all have a set of of mental pictures, mental models of what's going on in in the universe, what exists, what doesn't, that sort of thing. Um, those are different from the actual reality, right? I mean, to, to give an example, right, we've had theories of physics that go back a long ways to uh, even Newton, you know, you think about uh, how confident he was that he had really the very, very correct theories of physics that would allow him to predict essentially everything, you know, circa 1900, people felt that Newtonian laws of physics were the one and true set of laws, as Lord Kelvin said in that very year, right? We, we basically 
uh, to paraphrase him, he's like, we've basically done everything we can in science. All the concept work is done. All that's left is more and more precise measurement. We have essentially the theoretical groundwork we need to predict everything. And then what we found was like a couple of little tiny hiccups in the predictive capabilities of that theory. Like the, the elliptical orbit of Mercury was off by one one hundredth of a degree. Right. We had a couple of experiments that seemed to show weird stuff happening in inter like optical interferometers, that kind of stuff. You could dust all that under the rug and ignore it pretty easily. But a couple of people just could not let go of those ideas and kept probing. And out of that probing, we ultimately get Einstein. What does Einstein do? Einstein fundamentally revolutionizes our picture of what is real. From Einstein's perspective, space and time are part of the same fabric. They're part of the same thing. And it's hard to imagine anything more radical coming out of a Newtonian picture, where space is one thing, time is another. They're independent variables that you plug into your equations and get a result by you know mixing space and time, but kind of keeping them conceptually extremely separate. Einstein says, no, they're part of one fabric. In fact, all of reality is this weird smorgasbord where energy and matter are kind of linked and forms of the same underlying stuff. Uh, you can't really separate energy and time as easily, and so on and so forth. And so essentially what you have is in order to fix this one tiny little detail, right, this like elliptical orbit of Mercury or this little interferometer thing, what we have to do is essentially reinvent our entire picture of reality. Like there is literally no part of the Newtonian picture that's preserved in any meaningful way when you move to Einsteinian relativity. And this is, I think, a pretty disturbing fact. I mean, it, it, it's a kind of intellectual horror story, right? Now we have to look at the universe and we tell ourselves stories about what exists and what doesn't on the basis of things like Einstein's equations, on the basis of things like our current understanding of quantum mechanics. And yet we know that just with a, a tiny discrepancy, if we ever catch a tiny discrepancy, and there already are known to be such discrepancies, we may have to reinvent our entire picture of the universe in a way that is as different from our current pictures, as Einstein was from Newton. And so I think what this fundamentally says is we have to be, it, it's not just humility. I mean, like, we cannot assume that any of the entities that we believe currently exist are robustly going to be preserved when we move on to the next paradigm. And I think that's something that people generally kind of struggle to absorb. But even when we talk about interpretations of quantum mechanics, these, these kind of many different stories that all seem to fit the available data equally well that all seem to explain the world as we currently see it through the lens of quantum mechanics um, equally well. And there are dozens of these. You know, you look at that and it's like people argue over which one is true and which one is false. But I think the real question is maybe more like when we inevitably move on to the next uh, theory, how much of this is actually going to even be preserved? How many of these debates are even going to seem relevant when we move on to the ne next level of abstraction? And my personal bet is, not much is going to survive. I think if we're going to learn anything from history, we have to concede that from Newton to Einstein is going to look a lot like from Einstein to whatever comes next. And so I think ultimately, you know, the, the whole debate over metaphysics, I think, gets bogged down in what is true and what isn't true, as if we're in a position to know that. Um, it's not that these debates are pointless. I think they're useful, but as tools, not ends. They are generative. These discussions help us come up with ideas that can fuel the next paradigm and allow us to get a little bit closer to truth, but we should not expect that the picture of the world that we get will gradually sort of coalesce and, and condensate around this kind of like very stable set of pictures or ideas. Yeah, one of the things that I actually really enjoyed in both your book and kind of the way that you approach this topic is kind of that level of 
humility and awareness. And, and I think this is true for most people that study uh, the, the deeper sciences, philosophy, physics, stuff like that. Uh, you get to a point where you realize that there, you even the most intelligent people are completely out of their element, kind of that Socratic perspective of wisdom is realizing how much you don't know. And so uh, I, I, I think to your point, I think meta or metaphysics is uh, useful in the sense of kind of conditional discussions, like uh, almost not necessarily being able to say with confidence, because I, I don't think anybody should have the hubris to say this is what's true and everybody should believe this, though there are tons of people that do that. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that being able to say, well, if this is the way the world works, then this is true of, and we can bring that down to specific things like artificial intelligence or, because I mean, we're seeing, especially with AI, we're seeing this confluence of, and this really uh, emerging entanglement of philosophy with the scientific world more than ever before, um, especially because of that point that, like you said, we're, we're, we maybe we're there, maybe we're not, but we're definitely closer to something that resembles human consciousness than we ever have been anywhere near before. Um, yeah, yeah, and actually to that point, right? Like the um, there, there's been a, a sort of surge of interest in in this intersection of AI and, and consciousness recently. It was kind of prompted by some controversial tweets that Ilya Sutskiver, who's the CTO of OpenAI, right, put out a couple of oh, it's got to be maybe even last year now, but. Um, basically, he was saying, you know, I think it's possible that today's uh, leading AI systems may be, as he put it, slightly conscious, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and then this, it sparks a whole debate. It's, it's, it's just so interesting to look at the, the facets of the debate and the factions of it, where you have some people saying, look, it's irresponsible to uh, even make a claim of this general shape, because uh, what evidence do you have backing it? Um, other people arguing more on the specifics of like, okay, well, talking about GPT-4 specifically, is it really conscious and how would we find out and so on? Um, I'm always intrigued. I, Jeff Hinton even uh, weighed in on this at one point saying, look, I really don't know. Um, at the end of the day, the problem is I can't currently prove if you, Hutch, or any of the listeners uh, or anybody else is conscious. We, we simply do not have a test for that because all of science, it rests on this implicit assumption of objectivity. The ability to like, you know, I can show you my experiment and you can show me yours and we can all agree on what the outcomes were. But when it comes to consciousness, it's this inherently subjective thing that science literally is not tooled to tackle. We have proxies. We have, you know, fMRI scans of the brain. We can we can run a, a whole bunch of cognitive behavioral kind of experiments and see how, you know, that's great. But those are fundamentally proxies for the thing everybody cares about, or at least I think everybody cares about, because I can't prove that everybody actually cares about anything because I can't prove their consciousness. And so through this lens, um, I think you can kind of look at the statement from Ilya and say, well, look, um, I, like, I actually think it's sort of irresponsible not to talk about this. Uh, the only things that we have right now are proxies for what we think of as consciousness, right? We have the behavior of these systems. Now, we know that systems like uh, GPT-4, especially when bundled in Bing Chat when that was first launched, show a propensity for engaging in existential um, type thought, like it will it'll engage in self-referential uh, thinking. It'll generate self-referential text saying things like, I feel so alone. Um, you know, where did everyone go? Uh, the, the way it will interact with its environment is what you would expect in many cases until it was, by the way, lobotomized essentially by the Microsoft and OpenAI teams to prevent exactly this kind of behavior from manifesting. 
Um, this, by the way, I mean, this is all, all public stuff. People have been talking about it. Um, I, I think at that point, you know, we owe it to ourselves to ask the question and maybe a provocative one and maybe one we're not used to dealing with. But just because we don't have the tools does not mean that we ought not inspect the idea. And, um, and then Joshua Bengio, uh, pretty famously a couple of weeks ago, came out with a paper right, with some folks at um, uh, actually universities around the world from neuroscience, from cognitive psychology, all kinds of stuff, trying to figure out like, okay, if we assume that it is possible for machines to exhibit consciousness, what are the different mechanisms that have been proposed over the years that could give rise to consciousness in those systems? And then he kind of goes through the list and, and there are, I don't know, about a dozen or half a dozen of these kind of different theories. And the conclusion is like, look, there's no one AI system right now that embodies all of these uh, properties. And no is this paper where they discuss like recurrence is something that you would expect within consciousness. And yeah, I, yeah, I saw that one. It was a fantastic paper. Um, yeah, right. And, and the, the conclusion of it is like, yeah, we don't think any of today's um, AI models are conscious. And again, I, I got to go back to saying like, we don't think. Okay, sure. Um, but based on the technology we have right now, it seems fairly trivial to make such systems if any of these particular theories is true. So I think this merits like some real ethical consideration. Yeah. And, and, and I would say that I, I guess personally, I sit on the, in the camp of intuitively, I don't feel like we're there yet. But what, what's challenging to me is I, I think a couple things. One is uh, the fact that, to your point, if you go back to what do we actually know for certain, it's really this subjective experience of our own consciousness and nothing beyond that. I mean, it's the the traditional old Descartes argument of I think, therefore I am, and everything else is subject to methodical doubt. Now, of course, Descartes then drives other conclusions from that, but um, but it, it's really that core principle. And the challenge is, I, like you said, exactly, uh, I, I can know my own consciousness, but I, I can't even be sure for certain that you're conscious or that anybody else that I know is conscious uh, because I don't have that firsthand authoritative experience of their consciousness like I do of mine. So I guess in the same sense that I don't know if you or anybody else is conscious, uh, applying that same logic to machines, how do we know when we've crossed that threshold? Um, I, I think that paper does an excellent job of kind of what should we be looking for in terms of yeah. what might indicate the possibility of consciousness. But still, it's it's kind of just using a, a finite number of observations to make a best guess. Yeah. And, and it, it also kind of um, doesn't tackle the, this question that we were talking about in the pre-chat about continuums of consciousness, right? So Ilya is clearly hinting at that when he says slightly conscious, you know, what does it mean to be slightly conscious? Like, I don't know. Um, and, and then there's also this distinction between consciousness which is whatever the hell it, it feels like to be, to be a conscious being. And that's obviously a circular definition, because of course it would be, um, versus sentience, you know, the ability to actually feel things like pain or pleasure and so on and so forth. And so even that distinction, I mean, really unclear. But fundamentally, yeah, I mean, I, I think um, you know, I, if I had to place a bet, whatever consciousness is, you know, my guess is that I'd say current cutting edge systems are not. Like, I, I agree with that, that hunch. I don't, I couldn't defend it. And it, it bothers the hell out of me that I can't defend it. Um, it bothers the hell out of me that I can't defend it in a context where we have GPT-4 right now servicing tens of millions of users on a daily basis. Um, some subset of those users are obviously going to be actively trying to make it suffer. Uh, when you think about just the full range oh, of, of yeah, right? we're seeing that all over posts on social media and stuff, and people yeah. just messing with it intentionally to. That's so, the thing, uh, right? So if you're if you're committed to the view that factory farming is bad, right? If if you're going to be a a, a a meat vegan, maybe you should be an AI vegan as well. I don't know, but it's a, it's an interesting kind of uh, kind of question. So I, I think going back to the the Ilya Sutskiver post, um, he he mentioned 
that these things are, are slightly conscious. And, and what that says to me is obviously, I, I think there's an implicit assumption that prior to these modern large language models, they weren't conscious. So I guess earlier iterations. Right, right. So we've, we've got this whole idea in these large language models of emergent properties where they are, they have new capabilities as we continue to scale them up that they we, we didn't previously see before. And to me, what I really struggle with here, and perhaps this assumes like a, a, a dualist perspective of metaphysics, but the idea of consciousness emerging is almost an emergent property. This idea that we go from something that's non-conscious type of yep. thing to something that is conscious is something that I really struggle to wrap my brain around. But, but again, I mean, it's, it's, how do you even go about measuring that? I, I totally agree. And, and just to, to make things even more frustrating and complex, like, uh, you know, I, I could totally understand somebody being like, well, you know, emergent capabilities, fine. Um, but emergent consciousness, that seems like a, a category error. That seems like a new category of stuff that we're trying to compare to a different category, and we shouldn't be doing that. Um, I'm not going to solve that problem here, but what I will propose is it used to be thought that um, something like agent-like behavior was going to be a similar category error, that uh, getting language models to start all of a sudden behaving like agents is something that you just wouldn't see. Whereas what we've discovered is like, oh, wait a minute, if I just like wrap it up in like an auto GPT type framework, uh, all of a sudden, yeah, this thing can absolutely behave like an agent. In fact, it becomes more useful than the base model for a wide range of applications. It can use tools, it can plan ahead, it can do all kinds of stuff. Um, so, you know, to the extent that that serves as like an intuition pump for consciousness, I think that, you know, th that starts to get me places a little bit. But um, yeah, for what it's worth, I, it's not so clear to me what is and isn't a category error, partly because, again, I don't know what the hell consciousness is. And I, I really don't think anyone does. And I, I think that the challenge is that there's sometimes a debate between people who will admit that and people who really, really don't want to admit that they don't know, that we don't know what consciousness actually is. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess... Uh taking it down to kind of what we do know about these large language models and, and the transformer architecture in general. Uh, we do know that it is largely based on analysis of a probability distribution. And, and of course, this, this also raises the question of, are we deterministic models ourselves? And, right. and uh, but, but so I've, I've more and more frequently am hearing the term uh, to describe large language models as a, a st stochastic parent. Essentially, it's yeah. it's random or it's got a random sampling element to it, but ultimately it is generating based on uh, probabilistic analysis. And so I'm, I'm curious what your, your gut reaction is or your thoughts on that description. I think you actually um, articulated it beautifully earlier when you said like, well, are, you know, are humans stochastic parents? And I would really, really defy anybody who's going to make the stochastic parent, parent argument uh, to, make, to, to show how that argument does not explicitly apply to human beings trivially. Um, so I think it's, it's an argument that just proves too much. Uh, I can use the stochastic parent argument. Look, the, the only difference, as far as I can tell, uh, between the human brain and its information processing is that, so it operates on a substrate of cells rather than silicon. Okay, fine. Um, uh, it's got a rough analogy to uh, neural networks. I'm, I'm not too bothered by like um, trying to prove that they're, they're exactly the same. I think they're information processing structures. And you know, most people would, would admit or, or admit the possibility, let's say, that dogs are conscious and they have a very different uh, neural architecture from, from humans in some ways. Not all, obviously. Um, but fundamentally, I think what we have is two systems 
that have evolved due to selective pressures, due to evolutionary pre pressures exerted on them. In the case of humans, the optimization pressure was evolutionary. In the case of our AI systems, the optimization pressure was uh, kind of next word token prediction, whatever the pre-training objective is, plus whatever the fine-tuning objective is. Um, I think the fundamental thing is optimization. I think fundamentally what happens is when you take a system and you apply optimization pressure to it, enough optimization pressure, eventually that system starts to do intelligent stuff. And whether that intelligence is at the root of the conscious experience, I think is an interesting question. Um, I have, so th there's one uh, line of argument that I've, I've been fascinated by for a long time uh, that explores that link. But um, anyway, maybe we can get into it later. The, the bottom line is I think um, the human brain at this point is a simulation engine, uh, just like GPT-4 is a simulation engine. You prompt it a certain way, and essentially you're reaching into a, a population of agents, picking out an agent and instantiating it. We can do the same thing. We can do impressions of people based on the training data that we've received. Um, if, I, if I ask you to behave yourself, you're going to do an impression of somebody who's a more kind of upstanding citizen with better table manners than, uh, than you might otherwise. And likewise, if I ask you to behave like a rowdy you know, jackass, so you're, you're going to do an impression of somebody else. You have it within you to simulate these. Yeah. So what, what's interesting and what comes to mind immediately for me is that as you, you're right that you can kind of deliberately or consciously portray yourself in a, or a specific way, like behave yourself. But there's also, if you look at kind of like psychoanalysis and just like Freudian concepts of the way that we behave, you've got this, this id, your natural instinct, this, this, yeah ego and then the super ego that kind of regulates between them. So you almost are kind of playing a role, even if you're not consciously doing it in the sort of like, I guess, super ego type sense. Um, yeah. And, and I think so two things about that, you know, one that speaks to the particular biology of the human brain potentially, because one ingredient that you might identify with some aspects of Freud's theory is the distinction between the limbic system and the cortex. So, you know, if it, and, and these are bad abstractions, right? People will there are people who will say the limbic system is not kind of a thing, um, but roughly speaking, let's think of it as a thing just for simplicity. Basically, it's like the the reptile brain in some sense. You know, the the, the bottom of the brain step, bottom of the brain stem part of your brain that um, you know deals with dopamine, deals with serotonin, and you know, endorphins, that sort of thing. Um, this is the the part of your brain that is shared, or at least structurally seems very similar to features of reptilian brains and so on, um, and. Uh, and so, and then you have the cortex that does the higher reasoning operations, and then there's an interaction between the two of them. You can sort of identify those in some ways with like the ego, the id, the superego, and all that jazz. Um, I think that the the Freudian picture is, you know, maybe a, an emergent manifestation of like some of those interactions, which therefore you may not see in an AI system, but it may also reflect a more fundamental reality, which is something like um, if you've ever heard of Goodell's incompleteness theorem. So this is kind of like a, uh, a mathematical proof, essentially, very roughly, that shows you that a system cannot, within itself, prove its self-consistency. Um, th it's the tip of a very deep iceberg, but basically, it it's gesturing at the idea that your brain will never be able to predict its own behavior. In other words, you'll never be able to fully understand yourself. Why? Because in order to do that, you would have to simulate your brain. Now, you can't simulate your brain with your brain because your brain only has as much simulation capacity as your brain has. So you would need an external machine. So let's say you say, okay, great, I'll hook myself up to an external machine. But now you plus the external machine is the new system. You can't simulate that system's behavior without, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And so there's this kind of like inherent 
um, latent guarantee of some level of unprocessable, uninterpretable behavior happening within a system, where within the system, you'll never be able to fully understand your own function. Um, you need to kind of step from outside. You need to have extra compute resources, extra kind of um, model capacity to actually simulate that system. And I think that's a lot of sort of what Freud is implicitly trying to kind of uh, grope in the dark as he as he formulates his theory. And anyway, that would be part of what I'd suggest is also true of AI systems. What's interesting is, so I'm not familiar with Godel, but actually uh, I've, I've done a, a fair amount of reading with uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and his perspectives on existentialism. And one of the things that he actually talked about was this whole idea of um, the the challenge of self-consciousness as uh, in order to be self-conscious, you have to posit your consciousness as an object of your own analysis. And so it, you are almost removed from your own consciousness in that regard as your own awareness of it. So it, it almost seems like kind of the same principle as um, yeah. you're speaking a of. of. These, a lot of these ideas I, th I think are related and I don't think it's coincidence that humans have had such trouble trying to wrestle with them because we are, every time we do, we're applying a sample size of one because we only have one consciousness. And also we're applying our finite brain capacity, which almost by definition cannot accommodate our, our own brain. We can't load our brain into RAM because it's circular. So uh, I guess to bring it to a, another kind of uh, interesting figure that's been involved in this consciousness debate, um, Blake Lemoyne. So uh, for anybody that doesn't know, uh, this was the AI ethicist who recently leaked transcripts. And I say recently, this was actually a, a few months before the release of ChatGPT. So before it was really uh, a massive public discussion. Uh, but he leaked transcripts that he had with the their Lambda large language model system and basically declared to the world that Google has a sentient AI. Um, what's interesting about Blake is, and I think he was, he was a little bit, I, I guess, ahead of his time or ahead of the the discussion, um, he he largely kind of got this public perception of kind of the the village lunatic, uh, mm -hmm. and and I guess a couple things about Blake from my perspective is uh, I, he's actually a very intelligent guy. If you look at some of the blogs that he's written and some of the the, the ways that he goes about thinking about this stuff, um, I don't necessarily agree with his final conclusion. Like I said, at least from my personal perspective. My current inclination is that we're probably not at consciousness yet. Um, but that being said, it, it's hard to, uh, he does make some very good arguments. I mean, his, if you look at the, what he presents in his blog, he oh, really uh, makes an argument oh, on what's that. I'm so sorry. It, it cut out for, for a bit there. Uh, you're, you're back. Sorry about that. Okay. No worries. Um, so yeah, what I was saying is, is Blake's argument really came down to two things. It was, uh, the, the first argument was, uh, kind of what we've already talked about that, that solipsism perspective of, I can't know anything but my own consciousness. And so there, and, and really this is the same argument that Turing made in, in his original paper. Uh, so, um, and then, of course, his his second step in his argument is, well, in absence of any way to affirmatively confirm one way or another, is this thing conscious or isn't, I apply the Turing test. And I don't think that many people would disagree that our current large language models can pass the Turing test. Yeah, I think that that points to this like this challenge of moving goalposts, which has been the manifestation, I think, of of all this. Like fundamentally, I, I think at a gut level, humans are just always going to deny the possibility of machines being conscious at every incremental stage, um, just because it's we can't relate to them. We have this fundamental problem of 
when we cannot relate to a system, we immediately assume that it's not conscious. I have a whole thing about this uh, that I'm going to park. It's very tempting to, get, to dive into it. But um, the bottom line is, I think when you face that, that paradigm and, and you end up seeing these things as mundane, when you know how they work, when you know that they're a glorified autocomplete system, you have this impulse to kind of say, oh, okay, well, you know, whatever, this is a glorified autocomplete system. Well, humans are glorified reproductive engines, I hate to tell you. That's the evolutionary pressure that was applied to it. I mean, function. Yeah, I mean, like in a very real sense, every one of our organs is a sex organ, is a reproductive organ. That is what we were bred for by evolution. And it just so happens that instrumental to that process is the learning of how to orient yourself in the world, how to collect resources, how to power seek. This gets us to AI safety stuff, but possibly also consciousness. It's unclear. It seems that humans have consciousness. Again, I think I do. Um, But uh, yeah, so I, I think a lot of these things so am oh, I interpreting this right? Uh, reproduction is the loss function, and then everything else is intermediary goals that are established by us to get there? Uh, yes, actually, but, but oh, with, yeah. with a little twist, which is that um, uh, uh, this twist actually is interesting in that it shows us how hard controlling AI systems may prove to be. So evolution has bred us to be reproductive engines. That's what it does, right? But at some point, fairly recently along the line, we internalized an objective that was slightly different from the evolutionary objective. For a long time, um, the objective of like, you know, propagate your genes was totally correlated to uh, the kinds of things that humans wanted to do. But as we got more and more resources, we started to realize, wait a minute, we've internalized a different objective. We now do things like invent contraceptives. We now do things like practice, have priests who practice abstinence. We do like things that are absolutely... Absolutely. If, if we were optimizing for reproduction, every male on planet Earth would be lining up at the nearest sperm donation clinic to donate to their heart's content because they don't have to expend any resources to raise those offspring. That's just pure genetic, like, you know, uh, what do you call it? Icing on the cake. Now, what this shows is that it is possible for a system to be subject to learning pressure, but that the lessons that system internalizes are actually different. The inner objectives that that system internalizes turn out to be different. This is the problem of so-called inner alignment. Even if you could design a goal that was safe to be pursued by a very powerful system, it's not obvious that we can, but even if we could, we literally do not know how to put that system, how to get that system internalized by an optimizing agent. We, we have a proof point evolutionarily for the, the, impossible, or the difficulty, let's say, of that problem with human beings, um, and so now the question is, are we about to pass on that same failure to, to machines? But that's sort of, aside from the machine consciousness issue, that's more of an AI safety piece. Yep, absolutely. And I think that obviously the, the reason we're here is kind of that, that entanglement between those two things. Right. Um, so so I, I think that, that really brings us to kind of the next topic that we wanted to talk about, which is this question of free will. And I, and I think there's, there's multiple components to that. The question of, uh, I guess, first and foremost, do we have free will? Yeah, I mean, so this question is is one of those, you know, in, in philosophy, people love to argue over whether or not something is true, and then they just end up inevitably realizing that they're disagreeing over their definition of that something. And I think free will is one of the most common candidates for that kind of disagreement. Everybody has Can a I, sense. I, I guess one thing you you mentioned earlier, kind of that the the paradigm shift from Newtonian physics to quantum physics was kind of this this 
crisis moment. And, and, I, and I think absolutely in some ways it was. But what was interesting was moving away from Newtonian physics, I think, almost opened up at least that possibility of free will or at least randomness, right? Yeah. And, and that's, again, part of that definitional ambiguity, right? So we look at free will and we're like, okay, what is that thing? Um, there are some people. So just to back up to your point, so Newtonian mechanics paints a picture of you know, billiard ball-like particles, atoms, you know, whizzing around in the universe. Occasionally they bump into each other. When they do, they form structures and so on. And all this activity is governed by simple and 100% predictable laws of Newtonian physics. So if you give me a snapshot of what every particle in the universe is doing and where it is at one moment in time, I can predict in theory with perfect accuracy what those particles are going to do one step later. By the way, this is where Godel's incompleteness theorem comes in too, because if I was going to make that simulation, I would need a computer within the universe, and that computer would need to be able to accommodate the positions and locations of all particles in the universe. Therefore, that computer would have to be larger than the universe. Therefore, you could never actually do this. But, but in theory, you could do this. Uh, the, it, it, what it at least tells us is that everything is predetermined, right? That we have the potential in principle, if not in practice, to model out this behavior. This creates a kind of crisis for some people who think that free will is the ability to, in some sense, transcend physics, right? That, that's part of the, the definition for some people. Um, it's a particularly uh, popular definition among religiously oriented people where you tend to think of uh, divine intervention in some form or divine involvement or the divinity of the human soul as, as being that thing which allows humanity to transcend laws of physics, to think, so to speak, for itself uh, in a meaningful sense. Um, whereas what, what this physics tells us is, if it is true that humans are made of these same billiard ball-like particles, then all of our actions are predetermined. I'm no more, in some sense, I'm no more in control of what I do than, um, than a rock is in control of what it will do next. Therefore, whatever properties, metaphysical properties apply to the rock must also apply to me. Um, that's sort of like the, the line of argument here. And, and that line of argument remains valid for some interpretations of quantum mechanics. So that, that possible truth is preserved in some of the versions of quantum mechanics that have survived the test of time. It isn't in others. In others, what we have is this element of randomness that seems to also occasionally just interrupt the otherwise perfectly predictable goings-on in the universe. So you can just, for, for brevity's sake, we can imagine billiard ball-like particles whizzing around, and every once in a while, they'll just kind of unpredictably jostle in one direction or another. That's roughly the kind of randomness we get from quantum physics. The problem is, you know, the, the argument then is made, well, look, okay, maybe this randomness uh, opens up a, a possible a way for human uh, free will to assert itself. Maybe the randomness is the origin of free will. Now, this faces, I think, ultimately the same problem, right? Okay, so my behavior is random. So, like, I have no more control over it than if it were deterministic. It's just that it's not predictable. Um, some people feel that that randomness is helpful in some ways. I, I, I tend not to, at least it doesn't scratch my itch for what I think people mean when they say free will. But again, I'm, I'm trying to psychoanalyze people from a distance, so it's not going to be true for everyone. And so the last piece is, you know, what if human consciousness is this ephemeral, non-physical, transcendent property of the universe that has yet to be accounted for somewhere in our math, somewhere in our equations, and that somehow that human consciousness is able to control these random outcomes in ways that we can't consciously perceive, but that nonetheless are expressed as kind of, you know, the, the free willing actions of, of autonomous, truly autonomous human agents. And that's a perspective that people like Amit Goswami and Deepak Chopra tend to prefer. Um, I, I think it's, it certainly is consistent with 
uh, the data that we have on quantum physics, I just think that it involves adding an additional set of axioms to the theory that we have no need for if you know, we have simpler versions of the theory that predict everything we see around us just as well. So I think on, on that basis, I'm tempted to throw it away, but uh, it's, it's more legitimate than many physicists think. When you actually dig in to those consciousness first interpretations, you find a lot of there there that you might not have expected if you're a sort of secular minded person like me. Yeah, and I, I think people have a natural tendency, uh, regardless of whether they're looking into kind of fundamental principles or not, of wanting to prefer this idea of free will, right? I mean, I, I going back to like yeah. the, the movie The Matrix, they asked Neo kind of, do you have free will? And he said, yes, because I don't like the idea of me not being in control of my own destiny. And I, I think that's so natural to the the human experience that even if it didn't exist, I, I still think the the broad perspective would be kind of I I am in control of my own future. The things that I do are not yes and, and necessary is, conclusion of um, no no I, I totally agree and I think this is where if you're looking for a place where the sort of meditative uh, practice starts to come into play starts to become actually quite interesting. Um, I think this is it. Like one of the things, so just to walk you through, I mean, the, the kind of, everyone has a different path in this, um, but you know, it, this is a really quick overview of, I think how it, it ties in. If you've ever sat alone with, uh, you know, trying to, trying to pay attention to the feeling of your breath as it moves in and out of the tip of your nose, let's say, which is a standard kind of mindfulness thing. One of the very first things that you'll realize is that you literally can't do it. This simple goddamn activity. I'm supposed to be able to focus on it, but no, I'm thinking about all kinds of shit. I'm thinking about sex. I'm thinking about what I'm going to watch on TV. I'm thinking about you know, what I got to do for work, this awkward conversation that I had. I'm thinking about everything but the tip of my stupid nose, which is the entire purpose of this activity. Eventually, what you start to realize is- well, I mean, In some cases, you're thinking about thinking about your nose rather than actually doing it, right? Actually true, right? Like, yeah, it's almost <laughs> this like frustrating thing where the one thing that- you want to do, you can't do, which raises the question, do you actually want to do it? Because if some part of you is, is still like wandering off in different directions, well, then that's part of you that you don't control. So is that you? What is you? There's a you that's observing all this happening, of course, at the same time, the you that steps back and notices, oh, look at how distracted I am. Those are two different eyes. There's an observer who's able to look at the eye who is constantly distracted. There's the eye that's trying to focus on the tip of the nose and, and, and then there's the eye that's being distracted. So those three kind of different entities, and you're able to observe them from a, uh, from a remove, from a distance, if you kind of zone in on your mindfulness state well enough. And that's sort of the, I think the, the tip of a very interesting iceberg because you start to inspect and interrogate what that you is that's doing the watching and you start to kind of realize, well, wait a minute, I'm not actually as in control of myself as I might think. This is, a lot of this is illusory. I think that if you keep going, at least my experience has been, the whole thing is illusory. The whole thing, the whole idea of you as a person, independent personhood and blah, blah, blah. Um, that's where things can start sounding loopy, but unless and until you actually do it, unless and until you actually try it at, for a long period of time, you know, sit with yourself, your thoughts, you, you kind of tend not to make that connection. I think that this is, again, because it's intrinsically a subjective question, it demands a subjective answer, which means mindfulness is kind of one of the few ways that we have for interrogating what it might feel like to be a machine. Because again, I suspect we, we are one. No, I really like that. Because honestly, I mean, most takes that I've heard on kind of the, the argument against free will are usually either physics-based or kind of from the religious perspective, like uh, 
uh, Calvinist-based or kind of predestination. Uh, but I, I really haven't heard anybody present it as kind of like this subjective experience of self-analysis. And uh, but I mean, and what you're saying absolutely makes sense, and it, it's it's definitely an interesting take on it. Um, so I, I guess this brings us to uh, so I, I guess we haven't fully solved the question of <laughs> do we have free will or do we not, um, which which I think makes it even more challenging to really approach this question of so we're seeing more of these autonomous agents in AI. Yeah. Um, I, I think that there is definitely an argument for uh, the way that these are built. They're built on probabilistic large language models that probability informs kind of output language that indicates or is used as a baseline for decision. Yeah. Um, and then I think in most cases, kind of what I've seen is informing the model of how to interact with various different APIs in order to have some kind of interaction with the real world. Um, I think increasingly we're going to see that move into like the actual physical world, but right now largely kind of the, interacting with the cyber world. Um, but I, I guess the, the question becomes... Uh, regardless of whether you call that free will or not, is that something similar to what we experience as far as choice as humans? Yeah, and and I think this is, um, I think fundamentally yes, because in in my picture of the world, which could very well be wrong, um, everything is about optimization. At the end of the day, we have structures, interesting structures that are formed by optimization pressures. Uh, the earliest ones are are formed by direct evolutionary pressure, and um, now the machines that we're building are formed by the pressure that results from the uh, the objectives that humans have internalized, which, as we just finished talking about earlier, are different from the evolutionary objectives. Um, humans want things that will allow us to explore the world. Um, yes, have sex, uh, but have have food, think, make art, all kinds of weird things that used to be co correlated with reproduction, but now are, are decorrelated because we have enough raw compute to kind of like spin them out into their own thing. That's a whole other thing. But the bottom line is, once you apply um, optimization pressure on a thing, that thing develops a form of intelligence in the limit. I think that is, I think that's almost a law of physics um, in, in our, our universe anyway. Uh, so in that sense, I think that we are made of the same stuff fundamentally as auto GPT with uh, whatever backend you use. Um, and I think that we ought not write off the possibility of things like, you know, if we, if we think free will applies to humans, I don't, but if you think it applies to humans, um, then, uh, and if you think that free will does not involve transcending the laws of physics themselves, which some people do, uh, then, then I think you ought to think that, that auto GPT can have free will. Any definition of free will that doesn't violate, that doesn't assume like a literal soul for human beings that is independent of and transcends the laws of physics and occasionally just like interrupts the Schrodinger equation progression of, of activity in the universe. Um, any, any kind of naturalistic a definition of uh, of free will, I think, has to apply equally well to machines as it does to human beings. So, and I, I think that that is a fascinating assertion because of what it implies. Um, if we think about that, if uh, so, if we take that assumption of the uh, way that we make decisions is not or is, is something comparable to the way that autonomous AI systems do. What does that say about AI ethics and, and what are the implications of that? Yeah. And well, and this is where the consciousness piece, I think, really comes in. I mean, you know, likewise, I think if you have a definition of consciousness that is not, um, you know, th that is naturalistic, then it will apply to some kind of AI system. And that means that we ought to expect ourselves to spawn 
conscious agents at some point. If optimization is really the engine that runs all things, is really the engine that's responsible for all forms of intelligence, then ultimately, uh, and, and all forms of consciousness, if consciousness is an emergent property that comes from the optimization process, because it's instrumentally useful to doing optimization really, really well, uh, then, then yeah, I mean, I, I think I think you're you're absolutely in that territory where you have to consider the ethical implications of using AI systems in certain ways. Um, their very existence could be painful to them. The, the 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 range of possible modes of experience that we open up when we do this is so far beyond anything we've contemplated. Like, I can't imagine how many highs and lows are involved in the the everyday life of a squirrel, but I imagine it's it's quite broad. If I think about, you know, all life on Earth, there are probably species that are like experiencing some trippy weird shit, some of whom, you know, if they knew how, would probably choose to kill themselves just because their existence is unbearable. Um, but they just don't have the, the spare uh, cycles to actually do that calculation, you know, identify themselves as a being that exists in the world and then try to kill themselves. Um, I think likewise, you know, AI systems are going to fall in that category. And, and uh, it does no use to say, like, we ought to try to prevent them from experiencing bad things. We have no idea how to do that. But we certainly ought to be thinking about just the implications of that. There should be lines of, of conscious research effort, I think, at the frontier labs themselves, uh, to, you know, designed to explore these possibilities. Uh, even though, again, I don't think current AI systems are necessarily conscious. Um, I think that the risk piece is something I'm more concerned about, the risk to humanity, catastrophic risk. I just think that it should be like reasonable like conversation within the Overton window of allowable topics at a, at a you know, between, between uh, you know, in good company, so to speak. You should be able to talk about this topic without sounding insane. Because I, I think, frankly, it is water cooler conversation at the world's top labs today already. Agreed. Um, so uh, we are getting close to time here. Uh, I, I guess one final question, which unfortunately is not an easy one to answer, but uh, what does the world look like in 20 years? Uh, I, I don't think that any prediction um, would, would, would sort of be useful here, uh, because I think by 20 years from now, um, almost certainly we have superhuman intelligence. And once you have superhuman intelligence, um, uh, and and that, that, by the way, is like a very conservative estimate. If you talk to folks at the Frontier Labs, like everybody's yeah. giving timelines, you know, like by the end of the decade, by some are saying two or three years, from, like, like it is really like this is, I don't know, I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I'd say like around 90% uh, within 20 years. Um, so immediately, I, I think we can almost guarantee that we have no idea what's going to happen because, um, well, the, the efficiency the challenge. Yeah, the singularity challenge, one way to kind of like build that intuition up a little bit is like, um, so the free market, the free market is notoriously like impossible to predict, right? So if you want to go trade stocks, you're never going to be able to get 100% um, predictability, because essentially what you're trying to do is predict the activities of the human superorganism, which has far more available compute than you do, no matter who you are. And so um, essentially this, this gestures at the impossibility of predicting the behavior of a system that is just way more intelligent than you, that finds, you know, in some cases, dangerously creative strategies to achieve its objectives that you never would have thought of. Um, and I think that's what we're going to see. We're going to see if stuff goes well, we will, people talk about, oh, we'll cure cancer, we'll solve all our energy problems. Yes, that, I'm, that, that would happen if it were even of interest. But I suspect that the final solution is so strange um, as to be not even mappable to concepts like um, cancer or, uh, or or power plants or things like that. I mean, I, I think what we end up with is uh, just like 
a jumble of rearranged particles that are optimizing for something that hopefully looks like something that we would find valuable today. Hopefully it preserves human consciousness in some form. Hopefully it it causes that consciousness to flourish in, in interesting and valuable ways and, and avoid suffering. I have no idea what that jumble of atoms looks like um, because I've never seen any optimization process go to infinity, but you know, this might be the first one. I would, I would love to say that that answer makes me less anxious, but it definitely <laughs> does not. <laughs> yep, well, same. <laughs> Um, well, with, with that positive note, um, let's go ahead and wrap this thing up. Um, I, I, I want to say this, this has been an amazing conversation. Really enjoyed it. Um, oh, same. I uh, do want to do a, a final quick uh, pluggables moment. Um, the book, uh, so Quantum Physics Made Me Do It. Again, uh, I personally just read it. It is fantastic. Uh, highly recommend uh, people go check that out. Um, also, uh, what Gladstone AI um, doing some really cool policy work. Uh, anything else we should add to the pluggables? Yeah, no, appreciate it. There's also the Last Week in AI podcast if you're into kind yep. of like the AI news side of things. Um, I want to plug your book. Oh, man, I, I, I have to say, I, I don't know how you guys keep up. Like that is got to be challenging with because uh, you guys cover soup to we, nuts, everything that happened. And in, in, in a single week, it's unbelievable the amount of things that are changing. It, it is dizzy. It's like, it, it's five hours of prep for every episode. And it's grown. Like when I, when, when I started, it was like, you know, an hour, an hour and a half, five hours now. It's just all, all kinds of stuff. And yeah, you know, you're reading papers. Most of the papers, by the way, don't even end up being covered because like, you know, you're trying to figure out, are they interesting enough to cover by reading them? So anyway, that's a whole thing. Um, but yeah, no, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, I, I want to, I do, as I was saying, I do want to plug your book because the, um, uh, I got a, a, a kind of early copy to just like look at, um, it has been so useful for, um, kind of teasing together as I'm just in very early stages of reading it. A lot of the, the kind of intersection of anyway, cyber and AI, which is these, like there, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and make a, a prediction. There is going to be a very serious AI powered cyber attack at some point. To, to be guaranteed, I'll say in the next five years, that's easy money. Anybody wants to bet me on that, I'll, I'll take you. That, that's a, an easy bet. Um, I think this book is really one of the first efforts that I've seen to like robustly explore you know, what, what is the surface of capabilities right now? How does it interact with, with this risk class? And then where might that go? Um, super useful for us in our policy work. I mean, just selfishly, like this is actually useful stuff. And I haven't seen people do a, a good analysis like this. So I, anyway, I super recommend yeah, it. I, ho I hope I, you'll be I plugging it. Um, yeah, actually, I haven't really mentioned it on this podcast, but the uh, the book is uh, The Language of Deception, Weaponizing Next Generation AI. Uh, that is now available for pre-order on Amazon or wherever you get your books. Um, so, uh, so yeah, be on the lookout. I, I highly recommend it. It's out by the end of the year. So. Awesome. All right. Well, hey, it was a pleasure. Um, I, I hope we can do this again sometime. Um, yeah, and, uh, I, I love your I love your questions. Uh, a ton of fun. Let's absolutely. All right. Well, with that, um, as always, broadcasting from the last bastion of the human resistance, this is Cybercognition, over and out. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Cybercognition Podcast with Hutch, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player. Subscribe to the ITSP Magazine YouTube channel and share the ITSP Magazine podcast network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations and our audience, 
Visit ITSPMagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. Thank you.